The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. So I've, I've shared this with you before. There's something in my, my past that uh, I'm, I'm not proud of. I, I look back with, with deep regret. I still uh, bear the scars of it today, but um, here it is. I once owned a cat. was not my finest hour, okay? And, you know, I look back at, you know, we all make mistakes, okay? And um, I wanted to share about how that came about. It really was an accident. Like, I hadn't really thought it all the way through, okay? And um, uh, some of you I've told this story before, but, but here's how we ended up, um, Rebecca and I, it's my fault, but here's how we ended up with a cat for a season of our lives. I was driving in my car, unsuspecting, one day. And I was here in the Pembroke Pines, Cooper City area, and I was driving on Flamingo Road. I was going northbound. I was right by, uh, just after Pines, just north of of Pines, and I have got Memorial West, you know, right there on my right, and I I stopped there at Johnson Street, and I'm sitting at the light, the median beside me, and cars start coming off of Johnson Street, like turning to go southbound, and I see these cars. And at first, I didn't see anything, but eventually kind of out of the corner of my eye, I see cars like starting and and stopping, okay? And and kind of the corner of my eye, I see, and then I see something. And what I I see is like a black trash bag. It's kind of like blowing, you know, like a bag in, in the street as cars are zooming by, they kind of like blow under the car and they're like spinning all over the place. And I see a black trash bag and it's kind of causing these cars to stop and start. And um, so then I I see something, but then I actually see fully clearly what it is. And what I thought was a trash bag, it was not a trash bag. It was a black furry kitten. And I see that this kitten is darting back and forth between these cars and cars are starting and stopping and just like I'm watching and I'm like witnessing like a horror. Like I'm like, oh, it almost got hit. Oh, it didn't get hit. It made it. And it's like right in front of that tire. And then they screech to, the, to a halt. And I'm just watching this like frozen. Like I can't believe what's happening. And finally it scampers over the median and it crawls up into the wheel well of the car idling right in front of me. And I know the light's gonna turn green. And I'm like, this is gonna be so bad. Like, I, I don't want to see what I'm about to see. And so like, I'm sitting there like with my car and all of a sudden, something rose up inside of me. I mean, it just came surging from within. And it's, I mean, it can only be described as valor. I mean, it was just heroism, like self-sacrificing heroism. And I threw my car into park. I throw my door open and I'm walking to the car in front of me like this. Like you'd think there's like explosions happening behind me, okay? And I'm walking up and I get down and I'm, I'm reaching up into the wheel well and the lady like luckily sees me because if she backed up, I, mean, I was risking my life to do this, okay? And she's like, is it gonna be okay? And like, I all of a sudden reach my hand, I feel a little furry body just shaking and I grabbed it by the scruff of the neck and I hold it into the air, okay? And I walk back to my car, like I'm waving. I don't think anyone's noticing, but I'm like waving, you know, I've got the cat and I get in my car and I throw the cat in my back seat and I close the door and I'm driving and the adrenaline's pumping. And I'm like, that was maybe my finest hour right there. That was a... 
an incredible moment. I will tell my grandchildren about this day. And that's when I realize I have a wild animal in my car with me. And suddenly I realized that little kitten might be rabid, okay, you know. Maybe it's not a kitten, maybe it's a panther. I don't really know, I didn't get a good enough look. But I have a wild animal in my car, okay. And um, eventually, you know, we had the cat for, uh, we, for trying to get rid of it, you know, trying to pass it on, trying to share it to someone, give it to someone. Everyone else was wise enough to say, no thank you. And then we crossed that threshold where you've had the cat too long and now you kind of like the cat and then you keep the cat. And uh, that's how we accidentally ended up with, with, this, with this kitten. Okay, I say all that to say, okay, like we're talking about this series, series What Heroes Do. I want to share with you my finest hour of heroics, okay? Um, but there is an actual reality, all joking aside, there is a reality to moments where we spring into action and moments where we actually do something on behalf of someone else or we do something that is self-sacrificing or we do something where there's a need and we run to meet that need. And all joking aside, there is a barrier to what keeps us from springing into reaction and responding. And for me, that initial barrier was just not seeing clearly. I didn't really know what was going on then I, I partially saw what was going on, but I still didn't have the full, clear picture. But once I saw vividly and clearly, like exactly what this was, that's when something instinctual happens in us, and we're more likely to respond and to take a step of action that is for, for someone else, something self-sacrificing on behalf uh, of someone else. And so I, I think each one of us we want to live lives of impact and meaning and significance, and we want to, in very real ways, use our lives to meet needs. And I think while all of us are kind of geared towards comfort, we understand that the, the, the profound nature of self-sacrifice, but sometimes just the, the one thing that's missing is just clear vision of a scenario that we could step into. Jesus picks up on this very same theme in talking about what it means to follow after him. And so um, I want to share this passage with you. If you have a Bible or your Bible app, I want you to open to Mark chapter 8. Now, we're going to do this a little bit different today. There, we're going to actually quickly, we're going to go through the entire chapter because there's several different episodes but they all tie in together. And right at the centerpiece of this passage is a miracle that Jesus does. And honestly, it's one of the strangest miracles he does. But I want you to see it because it's actually very significant. So open with me to Mark chapter eight. Uh, we're going to start in verse one. Okay. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them on their way hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. And the disciples said, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. 
And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about four thousand people and he set, sent them away and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Unbelievable story. We could spend easily, not we could spend weeks on just this one story, but just for the sake of we're going to do it a little bit of a, of a higher altitude level on this whole passage. So let's just pause for a second, okay? There is the famous story of the feeding of the 5,000, but that was not the only time Jesus did that. He also fed 4,000. This is actually the story of the 4,000, and there's similar dynamics. Jesus is teaching, there's no food, and um, he, he uses the bread that the disciples have, or the meals that the disciples have, and he multiplies it so that everyone not only eats their fill, but there's enough left over. There's some interesting nuances to this particular passage in the feeding of the 4,000 that we've got to stop and note. The first thing is the very first words that Jesus said. Jesus' first words were, I have compassion on the crowd. In fact, even the way it is in, in the Greek, he says, compassion, that's like front-loaded into the Greek, compassion I have for the crowd. It's actually literally how it reads, compassion I have for the crowd. Now, this is interesting because often the Gospels will talk about Jesus' compassion all the time. They're like, and he had compassion on this woman and he healed her, or he had compassion on this man and he healed him, or he had compassion on the crowds because they're like sheep without a shepherd. It, it, often the authors are talking about Jesus' compassion. But this is the only episode, this is the only instance where Jesus himself draws attention to his own compassion. This is the only time Jesus says, I have compassion on these people. So this is going to frame up this entire section. It's a, that's an important kind of framing for this whole chapter. Jesus has compassion for this crowd. He wants to feed them. The disciples are looking over this ginormous crowd of what will turn out to be 4,000 people, and they say, we're in a desolate place. I mean, we're kind of in the wilderness here. Like, how are we? There's no nearby towns. How are we possibly going to feed all of these people? Now, remember, the feeding of the 5,000 has already happened. Jesus is like, okay, well, I guess we'll do it again. What do you have? Well, we've got these seven loaves, but, you know, it's 4,000 people, Jesus. is like, all right, give me the loaves. Breaks them. Give thanks. And it's hard to know. Like, how, when does the miracle happen? Does the miracle happen in his hand? Like, he keeps passing off, but the loaf doesn't change? Is it in their hands when they go and they, they give a piece, but this like, it never like dwindles down? Like, it, we don't know. We have to use our imagination. But somehow, seven loaves not only is enough to satisfy 4,000 people, but there's not just seven loaves left over. It is exponentially larger. It's not just now 10 loaves. That'd be impressive. How do you go seven, feed 4,000 people, end with seven, or 10, or 14? No, it's exponentially larger. Seven loaves equals seven baskets left over. Okay, incredible, incredible miracle. Now, one other thing to note before we keep going. 
is that if Jesus has the power to multiply seven loaves, then he would also have the power to produce bread and not even need the seven loaves to begin with. You follow me? I mean, he could have easily just said, hey, all right, watch this. And all the stones turn into bread on the entire area. Or he sends like bread down from heaven or manna makes it reappear. Like he has the power to do any of that stuff. He doesn't need the seven loaves. So the seven loaves were obviously not for Jesus' sake, but the disciples' sake. He's using their, the little that they have and he's multiplying it and there's much left over. Okay, incredible miracle. So much in there, but let's keep going. Let's pick it up in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Okay. He just fed 4,000 people. The Pharisees like, yeah, but do something impressive so we know you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, <sighs> he's like, you're never going to get it. You mean like a sign like what God did with the people in the wilderness when they're like, we have no food in, the, in a desolate place. And somehow he provided bread to provide for them in the wilderness. You mean something like that? Like maybe gather a crowd together in the wilderness and provide bread for all of them? Is that what you mean, Pharisees? Like, because that would be like a really critical sign that, you know, I'm God in the flesh. Is that what you mean? They had, I want you to notice, they had like no at all acknowledgement of what just happened. Like, that's not even in their brains. Like, they don't have no acknowledgement of a miracle. They have no acknowledgement of a crowd. They have no acknowledgement that that crowd's need was met. They're, like, that's not even in their purview. Like, they, they don't even see it. They're not even wrestling with it. They're not even thinking about it. It's not just that they're not connecting the dots. They see no dots. they like, completely blind to what just happened. You follow me? Okay, let's keep going. Verse 14. Now, so they're in the boat again, Jesus and the disciples. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, this is key, having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And the disciples said, 12. And then seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? They just finished feeding the 4,000 with seven loaves and they get into the boat and he sees them kind of looking around and they've got only one loaf and they're starting to look accusingly. And he says, watch out. 
Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. You know, they're looking at the bread. There's a whole bread theme going on. He uses leaven. There's something inside of you that is that has ruined the whole lump of the Pharisees. There's something, I'm seeing the, the tiny little bits in you that have ruined all the Pharisees. The Pharisees are completely oblivious to who I am. They're completely oblivious to all that I just did. They're completely oblivious to that whole miracle. They have not connected the dots. They're not seeing that. And I'm seeing that in you. Beware. They did not beware, and they had a full argument. They said, what are we going to do? How are we going to eat? We're so hungry, and there's 12 of us, and we've got this one loaf. What are we going to do? And Jesus like, really? If I can feed 4,000 people with seven loaves, and you saw me before that feed 5,000 people, I think I could feed you 12 with one loaf. I could actually feed you without the loaf and I could kill you right now, but I'm not gonna do that, okay? He says, be watchful for the leaven of the Pharisee. Be watchful, don't fall into the same trap. Okay, now here's where we're at, because we're just about, this next section is right in the middle of the passage and it's this crazy miracle, but let's just review. He does this incredible miracle. He has compassion on the crowd. He meets their need. The Pharisees don't understand who he is, so they miss that. Like, they're oblivious to that whole episode. The disciples have a little bit more awareness of who Jesus is, and they're actually involved, and they're part of the miracle, but they're still not fully seeing clearly. Got so far, you with me? Now watch this next miracle, because this gets crazy. Okay, I think it gets crazy. Pick it up in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Now, there is a lot in there that is interesting. He takes him out of the, out of the village. I mean, he spits on the guy's eyes. Like, that's, you know, that's a little bit odd. Okay, why is he spitting on him? There's a whole, like, reason behind that and what that meant culturally. It's not trying to insult the guy, but that's another message for another day. Okay. He does that. He heal, eventually heals the guy and, the, and he doesn't, he says, don't even go into the village. There's a whole thing in there as well. But just for the sake of continuing to get the overview of this passage, there's one particular detail that is so odd and unique about this miracle. And it's the only time that Jesus does this. He heals the man in stages. Did you notice that? Now, can we agree Jesus doesn't need two tries? Like, this isn't like just a really hard case. Do you see yet? You don't. Or right, let me try this again. It's not that. Like, can we agree? I mean, Jesus, through whom everything that was made that's been made according to the scripture, when Jesus speaks the universe not just obeys. When Jesus speaks, things start to exist. He doesn't need two tries. 
So what this is, is what's called a sign act. He's doing it in two stages to create a living illustration. This is what the prophets in the Old Testament would often do. Like they would get a word from the Lord and part of the word was some like object lesson where they like take a pot and they crash it on the ground and say, just like these shards of pottery or whatever, and they would give it, it's a sign act. Jesus is doing a sign act. This is, there's a reason that he's intentionally doing it in a couple stages. Now, what are the stages? First, the guy is totally blind and cannot see anything. Then he can see partially, but it's still fuzzy. And finally, he can see completely clearly, right? Three phases. Here's the random detail. And when the scripture gives you a random detail, because it's, there's this whole story of this blind man is only a couple verses. So if it takes the time to give this detail, it doesn't, we got to pay attention. It doesn't just say he could not see. And then he opened his eyes and he could see a little bit, but it wasn't clear. It tells you what he sees. He says, Jesus says, what do you see? He says, I see people but I'm fuzzy on, these, on the people. They, they, I can't distinguish these people from trees. I see people, but I can't distinguish these people from objects. And then he gets fully healed and he can see clearly. Okay, now let's finish out this chapter and let's pull all these pieces together. Let's pick it up in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. It's not time yet. But listen, Peter has that right. They see that he's the Messiah, but do they see fully yet exactly what the Messiah is going to be? Watch what else happens. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again, which is exactly what's going to happen. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. What's happening here? The disciples, he says, okay, the, the Pharisees have completely missed it all. But the disciples have it partially right. Who do you guys say that I am? You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. He says, you're right. But then he gives them a fuller picture of what the Christ must do. And he gives it to them plainly. They, weren't, they shouldn't have been surprised when this happens. Here's what's going to happen. 
I'm going to die at the hands of the religious leaders. I'm going to be dead. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. There will be a resurrection. And then Peter, riding high probably on just the, the whole Christ declaration, feeling pretty good about himself, pulls Jesus aside. Jesus, I need to talk with you for a second. And rebukes him. No, you're not going to die. Quit saying things like that. That's bumming everybody out. Like, you're not going to go and die like that. Like, come on. And Jesus wheels Peter back around with the entire disciples there and rebukes Peter in front of every one of them and says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, yes, you're right about the Christ part. This next part that you're saying is satanic. Bad day for Peter. It's rough, like roller coaster of emotions that he's been going through, okay? Why such strong words for Peter? Peter's insinuating that Jesus will fulfill all that it takes to be the Messiah without ever having to suffer and die. And that's the exact thing Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. Bow down to me, and you won't have to do all this stuff. I'll just give you the kingdoms. You don't have to, you don't have to gain the throne through your suffering. I mean, it's the same thing. And so Jesus is correcting and giving, they have a partial view of who he is as the Messiah. He's giving them the full view that he must suffer and die and will rise again. Why don't they like the full view initially that, they must, that he must suffer and die? Because if you're following a Messiah that has a very comfortable ride to glory and you're following after him, then you too will have a very comfortable ride on up to glory. And one day this one will sit on his right hand and his left hand and these will all be his cabinet and his counselors and his nobles. And that sounds great. That's why they're following Jesus. But when Jesus says, I must suffer and die, he says, listen, I need everybody to know. He says, if you're gonna follow after me, this is the type of Messiah I am. I will suffer and die. And if you're coming after me, you too will take up your cross and follow me. Okay, what's this whole chapter talking about? Let's go right back to the centerpiece and look at this miracle. There's three different types of, of vision when it comes to, to Christ. Like just like this man, he was totally blind, partial sight, full clear sight. The Pharisees are totally blind. They've missed it all. They don't know anything about who Jesus is, they, they don't see the miracle. They don't see the crowd. They see none of it. The disciples have partial vision at this point in Jesus' ministry. They're involved in the miracle. They're with the crowd. They see that. They know that he's the Christ, but they've missed the full gospel that he will suffer, die, and then rise again. And they're missing that they too will have to follow after Jesus and share in his self-sacrifice. And he's trying to get them to having full sight of the full gospel to understand who he is. Follow me? Okay. Last piece of this puzzle. It's so interesting, this one random confusing detail right there in the middle when the man has partial sight, because I, I wonder if sometimes we too have partial sight. But what's interesting about the man when he has partial sight is it's preserved for us what he sees in, uh, not fully. What does he see incomplete? He doesn't see people fully. When, when you know, you're totally blind, he saw no people, but partial sight, he also not just sees Jesus partially, 
He sees people partially. He sees them, but their outline is still kind of fuzzy, and he can't distinguish people from things and objects. And, and I wonder if this is all part of the lesson. This is what Jesus, because this is what Jesus always loops back to. If you understand God correctly, you see Jesus correctly, you understand the gospel correctly, not only will you know God, but you will see people the way Jesus sees people. Remember when he's asked one time, he says, um, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was the question. What's the greatest? And then he wants to make sure he adds, but here's the second. Love your neighbor as yourself. Understanding the gospel, understanding who God is and seeing Jesus clearly will lead us to see people clearly. Seeing, understanding the gospel. When the gospel fully opens our eyes, we will see people the way Jesus sees people. How did Jesus see people? The passage opens up with that. He looked at a crowd that were in desperate need, and he says, I have compassion on them. I've got to meet their need. And he took bread, and he broke it. And he passed that bread out and everyone was satisfied. And that's the summary, and there was overflowing left over. That's the summary of his entire ministry. He came to earth to all of us who were in need, spiritually starving, needing to be rescued. He took his body that he described as the bread and he broke it. His body was broken on the cross. He had to suffer. But any of us who take that suffering, take that, that offering of Jesus, well, Jesus as the, the bread of life and take and eat of it, any of us who accept Jesus as the broken bread of life for us will be spiritually satisfied. We will be saved, overflowing with much left over. That is the whole mission of Jesus. When we see Jesus clearly, when the gospel opens our eyes, we will see people clearly. Why? How does this work? Think of the textures of this passage. How does it work when the gospel opens our eyes? It, it, it makes us see people the way Jesus sees people. The, this sign that he does is one of provision. Disciples were still missing it. They're still worried about where they're going to eat, but you're like, you're with the provider. And with, when you're with a provider, they could... They should have been at rest at their own needs as long as we're walking with Jesus. I don't have to worry so much about my own needs and my own comforts. I don't have to worry so much about that because I'm with the provider and he will provide for me. And when I can not, no longer be so concentrated on my own needs and my own comforts and my own provision for myself because I trust the provision of God, I can get my eyes off of myself and onto the mission that God has. And secondly, when, I'm, when it's illuminated what this Messiah, Jesus, has come to do, that he's come to sacrifice himself, and I'm saying, I'm following that kind of Messiah, and I know that that's going to lead me to self-sacrifice. Like, following Jesus, I'm not just using Jesus to get a more and more comfortable life. 
I'm following Jesus on an adventure where I will have the same trajectory. There will be times of self-sacrifice, but on the other end, glory. There's times that I give up my loaves, I give up my simple loaf, and Jesus does far more with that than I could possibly imagine. But in the end, I get a whole basket on the other end. When I understand that uh, and I expect the self-sacrifice and that kind of love to a world that Jesus has compassion on and I anticipate it, I'm no longer so focused on meeting the needs of my own life that I can finally see the world the way Jesus sees the world, with compassion. We see people in full definition. We see people in ultra-high definition. In this series, we're talking about a a particular need in our city. The goal of this series, though, is not that we as a church become more passionate about the cause of foster care. The goal of this series is not that we become more aware of the issues surrounding foster care. The goal of this series is that we are awakened that there are children in need, not a cause to be for, but a child in need. And we respond to God's call to meet that need. Some of you know um, my wife, Rebecca, she worked in uh, foster care for a number of years. And um, while she, she was a foster care uh, support specialist, which means that she would go into the homes of these foster families and support them, encourage them, resource them, license them, get them all the needs that they would have. And each child would have a file. And so she'd have a file for the child that's in this home. And on the, the, the cover, paper clip to the cover, is a picture of the child. And often the picture for that child was taken, because when else would they get this picture? On the, the day or the night, that that child was removed from their homes. So inevitably, that picture is the face of a child in trauma. So she'd look at these little pictures and she'd see these children and sometimes just tears streaming down their faces. Sometimes the hollow, faraway look of a child in trauma can't fully emotionally process all of what's going on. And then she'd bring this file with this picture of a traumatized child into the home, into this loving home with it anchored to the gospel and a church community supporting them and around them. And she'd see the same picture, but she'd seen the same child playing on the floor, laughing, full of joy, different look on their face sitting on the lap of the foster parent and seeing that this family didn't just answer the cause of foster care. They rescued a child. Church, can we just remember it's a child, not a cause? 
And that moment of trauma when they're taken from their home and they're put in a police car and they're, they've taken a trash bag and they've put the few belongings they can in there, maybe a blanket or a teddy bear or a pillow and a few things in there and they're driving away from their home. And the trauma of that moment Everything has shown them that their reality is that they've been forgotten, they've been abandoned, they are alone, they are in danger. These children, our children, in our city, and the opportunity, the cause, is that we run to children and we scoop these children up in our arms into the embrace and warmth of our homes and we take them in our arms and into our homes and into our communities and we, we don't just speak the truth over there. We don't just silence the lies from the devil, the satanic lies that they're abandoned and forgotten and in danger and alone. We show them, we help them feel by our embrace, by our provision, by the safety we provide, the truths of the gospel. They are not alone, Jesus is always with them. They are not abandoned, Jesus sees them right where they're at. They're not in danger, Jesus loves them and is providing for them. They're not forgotten. We will show them through our embraces, we'll show them through our loving homes. That's the opportunity that we have. It's a child. And so often we approach that and say, look, I, I hear that. I don't know what I, I, I could do. Like I, I'm not one of those types of people that could take a child into my home, love on them for a season, and then send them back to be reunified with their biological family. I'm not the type of person that can do that. Church, there isn't a type of person that can do that. So what Rebecca told me is she said, I was there for many years. Uh, I saw these foster families at the time when they gave the child back to be, be, to be reconnected with their bio family. And she would say, you know what? I so often saw on their faces, these foster parents, tears streaming down their faces. And sometimes the hollow, faraway look someone struggling with grief and trying to process surrendering that child back. You know, the only difference is that those who take the step to do this are saying, I will trade places with your trauma. I will give you a safe home knowing that at the other end, I will, I will suffer the trauma of loss. But in this season of need, I will make you feel and know the message of the gospel by the embrace of our loving home. Jesus wants us to see these children the way he sees these children. You say, I don't know. I, I don't know how much I have to give. All he asks is the loaf that you have. And he'll take it and he'll do so much more than you ever thought he could with it. And here's the rest of it. You'll have a basket left over on the other end. Maybe entering in as a foster family, maybe Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to that because it's for you. Yes, you're, you're gonna meet an incredible need, but I have something I want to do for you in this that I don't want you to miss. I want you to hear the story of um, Kevin Enders. He's the president of Four Kids, and I want you to hear his journey when he and his wife became foster parents. I want you to check out this video. 
Before I was president of 4Kids, I was a senior vice president for a global technology firm. 17 years ago, we were in church and we heard this message about the need for families, that there were all these kids. I went home and I, I think the Lord, the Holy Spirit, I couldn't sleep for three days. And my wife, I didn't know this at the time, she was praying for me. She immediately wanted to respond at church. For guys, sometimes for me, it took a little bit longer. And uh, wrestling with the Holy Spirit, you know how that is, and uh, just arrested my heart for it. I was like, you've got to do something. We opened up our home, we opened up a bedroom, and just invited God to use it. He blessed us with that house, it's His. So how could we use it? And uh, so that's kind of where it started. We were pretty new believers, which I think was an advantage for us. We were, we were relatively uh, newly saved and just trying to seek what God would have for us to do, my wife Michelle and I. And we fostered um, many children, some who got reunified with grandparents. I'll never forget our first foster child. And, you know, her name was Penelope. We got this beautiful little girl. We didn't know how long we were going to have her, but we knew our role was just to provide a safe, loving home for her. And uh, pretty soon we got a phone call that her grandmother was taking her and her sisters that she was separated from and bringing them in her home. And it was beautiful. Started taking in more children and each of them had a different story. Each of them had a different name. But it was beautiful just to love on them. And through that process, I mean, God really was working on changing my heart. And so he gives you opportunities if you're curious and you wanna find out how, you hear about how extravagant God's love is. You start to understand, wow, God, you loved me when I was lost, when I was a spiritual orphan. Again, I say this a lot too. Yes, we want to provide homes for these beautiful children, these precious, I call them anointed gifts of God. But I do believe, and many of people uh, believe this with me, that these gifts are for us, that are really sent to, to rescue a church, the body of Christ that's struggling, especially now coming out of COVID, like looking for purpose. Yes, it's precious gifts for these children, don't get me wrong. These children need loving Christian homes. They need stable, loving families, people that can tell them about the love of God and tell them about the hope we have in Jesus. But in that work, God is doing such a work in you because he loves you, he loves me. And so he's, he's doing that for, for us. Amen. Um, I wanna ask, could um, each of you just take a second. Can you go ahead and take your cell phone out just for a second? Go ahead and grab your cell phone. Um, next week after the, after the services, uh, at each service, Cooper City and here at the West Pines campus, there's an informational uh, class. So there's an informational class this week after the service on Care Portal, an awesome opportunity. Next week after the services, there's going to be an informational on foster care, about becoming a foster parent. And so um, there's a slide. Go ahead and take your phone out. What I want you to do is, this is not to sign up to be a foster parent. You, you need way more time and prayer and information. But just take a moment and scan this. And if at any point you like even have a nudge, like a next step on, on this would be, like just find out more information. That's all next week's classes is you're just finding out more information. So if you've ever had the nudge of in this season or in another season of life, what would it look like to be a foster parent? Um, take, take a moment, you can scan this and then um, next week after the services, go to the informational meeting and, and find out. That's all the next step is. Like you can't, 
make a decision without much prayer and a lot of information on something like this. Also, it's a great class because it also will inform you on other ways maybe to get involved if this is the not, not the right season to step in as a foster family. But uh, our prayer is that God might be calling many of us as families to step in and to, be, to have the privilege and the opportunity of welcoming these precious ones into our home for a season and show them the love of God. Um, we're we're going to close our, our time together uh, remembering the sacrifice of our, our Lord Jesus. And here's why this is so Im- important to remember, um, especially at a time like this. Um, our salvation is because Jesus gave his life for us. Be- becoming a foster parent, doing incredible things, you know, taking big steps or showing love, that's not how someone's saved. That's not how you get God on your side. Like there's nothing we can do to be saved. It's what Jesus did. And maybe if you're here and you're like discouraged, like, man, you know, I could never, I don't think, feel like I could do that. And how am I ever gonna get God to love me if I can't do things like that? That's not what it's about. Like it's about Jesus died because he loves you and has compassion on you. And you put your faith in Jesus. And he told us to take communion. We, we take it with the broken bread. We remember when we take the broken bread and the juice that symbolizes his broken body and his shed blood. And it reminds us that Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us on the cross. And it's by his death and resurrection, by his loving sacrifice, that we are saved. And when we take this meal together, we're declaring that. And so we're going to end our time in, with communion uh, today. Um, would you bow your head with me and close your eyes? If you're here and today you want to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, maybe a, a step you can take is by taking communion and to proclaim that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And so um, as we take communion in a few moments, if, if you want to take that step, um, you can respond to salvation. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice We thank you for how much you love us. You have so much compassion on us. Thank you for calling us to follow after you. Thank you for your broken body. Thank you for your shed blood. Thank you for your sacrifice. We remember that that is what saves us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's um, some tables up here. There's some tables in the back. When you come up here, you'll find um, communion like this. You can just peel off the top and there's bread and then you can peel off the foil layer and there's juice. Um, depending on what you feel comfortable with. There's also cups for juice. If you want actual bread, there's even um, a gluten option, gluten-free option. Um, But also there's some um, wooden cups up here. If you, and in the back, if you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, um, and today was the day, like you're saying, Jesus is my savior for the first time. That wooden cup is for you to remember this day that you put your faith in Jesus. So you'll come forward, you'll take the elements. You can just take it right down front and make your way back and then we will close with a song together. Uh, Church, would you stand with me as we close? We're gonna take time to reflect on the person of Jesus. You can begin coming forward now and going to the back now. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.